Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Kate Fulton. Me, Phil Dave. And me, Diana Toman. Coming up this week, we'll be speaking to Mark Regev, the Israeli ambassador, about the claims by Prime Minister Netanyahu about Iran developing nuclear weapons despite the sanctions. We'll be talking to Naomi Dixon, chief executive of Jewish Women's Aid, about the rise in the number of Jewish women who are reporting domestic violence. And we'll be finding out more about this year's Jews Got Talent from Stuart Stepsky. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the Israeli Prime Minister's claims that he has proof Iran is still secretly working on its nuclear programme. In an address, Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel has more than 50,000 documents that prove the Islamic Republic has defied the nuclear agreement which it signed in 2015. His announcement came just days before Donald Trump is due to announce whether the United States will pull out of the International Nuclear Accord. However, the British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson declared that Britain will stick with the deal. And we'll be finding out more about this when we speak to the Israeli ambassador, Mark Regev, a little later in this show. There's been a 40% increase in the number of Jewish women reporting domestic abuse. There were 103 new cases in the first three months of 2018, while the 2017 quarterly average was 70 new cases. That's according to Jewish Women's Aid, who say the rise is partly explained by increased awareness and the Me Too movement. And a husband has been found guilty at St Albans Crown Court of sexual offences against a teenage girl dating from 2016. 47-year-old Jason Blair from Mill Hill was convicted of three counts of sexual assault against the girl when she was 13 and 14. He'll be sentenced later in May. Tributes have been paid to JFS student Ollie Lee, who died suddenly this week at the age of 16. Ollie was a gifted sportsman and represented Team GB at the 2017 Maccabea Games as a goalkeeper. Ollie attended Yavna College in Boreham Wood until last year, and both JFS and the college held special assemblies for their Year 11 pupils, who were classmates of Ollie, to inform them of his death. And lastly, two BBC documentaries following eight British Jews as they explore their identity will be broadcast in the autumn. Producers say the hour-long programmes will have a broad range of opinions, beliefs and practices. The eight will be shown in the heart of Manchester's Orthodox community before travelling to a kibbutz and then touring Israel and the West Bank. Thank you very much, Viv. So we're going to start this episode, as we usually do, with a look at this week's newspaper. From the Jewish News to go through with us is Richard Ferrer. So what's up first this week? Front pages, shock 40% rise in Jewish women facing domestic abuse. Jewish Women's Aid have uh, released their quarterly figures. First three months of 2018 has seen a 40% rise in people speaking out and asking for help when it comes to domestic abuse, which you'd think is obviously a, a shocking figure. But in the light and the context, I think, of the Me Too movement and the post-Harvey Weinstein climate, I think has, has shown that more women are, are more able, I think, to speak about what has obviously been seen as, as a great stigma, not just in the Jewish community, but, but in terms of, of social life uh, outside the community as well. There are, of course, a great deal of, of stigmas and in the community, sexual abuse being one of them, sexuality, depression, mental health. We often, uh, as a community, I think, are very backwards about coming forwards in these sort of things. So while obviously it will be seen as a, an upsetting figure, 40% is quite a large number if you actually 
dig down here, there are usually around 70 cases every three months. There were 103 during that period. So the good news bit of it is the the courage that it has taken people and the, the fact that these women feel more empowered to come forward. So that's, the if you like, the good news story. But obviously it's bad news in that we have got so much... We do. Violent. And I know you, you will be speaking to Naomi Dixon, the chief executive of Jewish Women's Aid in this week's show. They are one of the most pivotal, most important organisations in the community, do such a stellar job. They are in desperate need for more volunteers, uh, trained volunteers, and hopefully statistics like this which I think put into very sharp focus what they are facing will hopefully encourage hopefully more investment, more donation and more people to come forward and help them. Given how shocking these figures actually are, the one thing that I take enormous comfort from, and actually it, it in some weird way we'll be covering this later, because Kate, you're obviously going to be featuring your bit about the day of inspiration. I personally find this inspiring, how so many people have had that courage that is taken to come forward and actually speak out about this. So yes, however horrendous it is, it's a similar sort of situation to some of the other abuse stories that we've seen in the news over recent years, where it has almost encouraged people to recognise that they're not the only ones going through certain troubling times and therefore to actually speak out about it. So I, I completely understand what you're getting at when you say that there is a good news side to this. It's, it is actually inspiring, really. It, it is. Uh, the problem is always there. It's been there ever since time immemorial and it's taken, I think, up to this point in our, our history for us to have so many people feeling that they don't feel isolated or they don't feel judged or they don't feel that their family has failed or they've failed in some way in their, in their marriage or in their relationship to admit that they are in an environment that's unhealthy for them or for their children so yes it is important it's also important i think to acknowledge the role that the chief rabbi and the board of deputies and, and synagogue movements have have played in this over the last couple of years it's not just the harvey weinstein and the me too campaign although that's put things really front and, and center i think for a lot of people but generally speaking the jewish community i think has been very proactive in the last couple of years over this and long may it continue and if anybody is listening and wants to get in touch, I think all the details are in the paper. Yes. Can we move to a, a woman who's been causing a lot of hassle? Mm, indeed, Mary Hassel. Mary Hassel. Pun intended. Mary Hassel was appointed senior coroner for Inner North London in 2013. So this has been going on for quite a while. She came up with a, a cab rank rule when it comes to burials, which on the face of it seems... Sounds perfectly reasonable on the face of it. Absolutely, absolutely. First come, first served. Which, of course, could prove a problem for Jewish and possibly Muslim burials, people who want to get their dead buried quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, she's taken a view that... It's not a pleasant time for anybody or any family when you lose a loved one and you want things to be done as efficiently and as quickly as possible. Of course, the Jewish community, the Muslim community, those that prioritise burial and don't want to wait a longer period of time and cannot wait for religious reasons a longer period of time, did not find that acceptable, thought her opinion was obtuse, that it was clearly uh, penalising religious communities and wondered whether the religious community had a role in, in British society if something as fundamental as this was going to be penalised. Anyway, a very, very long, as I said, four, five-year story 
boiled down. And finally, this week, it was judged that it was uh, unfair and that it's been repealed. And she has unfortunately had to step aside and will no longer be invigilating. But one, of course, can't help but think of the anguish, even if it was not deliberately meant, but one can't help but think of the anguish it must have caused to so many families who do practice either Judaism or Islam, who do want to see their dead buried within a certain amount of time that it must have caused them a lot of further sadness, sorrow, frustration and anger at what would already be such a horrible time. Mm. Well, if, if memory serves, it, 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 this actually started as in 2013, she got the job. I think in 2014, there was an example of a Jewish family who were very upset that she ordered an, an invasive autopsy on a loved one when they wanted, obviously, a swifter end to, to this terrible chapter in their lives and then they brought out an injunction to try and stop her from doing that and then things started to move on from there so as you say Phil there's been a number of examples of this and I think the fact that hopefully now a line has been drawn in the sand will be a, a breath of relief for a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners. So also I believe you are going to be talking about fa- the Interfaith Awards the 21 for 21 What's yeah. that about? Well, our, our listeners and our readers will, will long be aware of all the initiatives and, our, and campaigns and all the wonderful things that we you like, like to a do. list. We love to involve our community and all the things we do. Well, this time we've gone into faith. We've gone for 21 for 21. So we're going 7, 7 and 7. Seven Jewish leaders, seven Muslim leaders, seven Christian leaders, all under 35, all shaping into faith and their own communities in the years to come. We've got a panel from all three communities. The Prime Minister has chipped in this this week hailing our initiative and saying that it's a, it's a great cause for celebration and a great celebration of, of British and religious values. So thank you very much, PM. I know she's having a busy time of things at the moment. So nice she still she makes could, time for interfaith, yes, nice that she as she should. On that. So it's called 21 for 21. Nominations can be submitted to the website 21 for 21, all numbers, 21for21.co.uk until June. And we're going to have an award ceremony later in the year uh, when we're going to award three faith leaders from the three different communities and when you say leaders are you talking specifically about spiritual leaders such as rabbis imams and priests or are you actually talking about the figureheads for the communities well it could be both i hope that it shines a light on people who are spearheading things that you might not ordinarily know about so yes we could be talking about the great and the good but specifically we're talking 35 and under so it's highly likely these will be unheralded figures Unfortunately, that is all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. But Richard, thank you very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you heard in the news headlines with Viv a little earlier on, that there has been a claim made by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying that Iran is continuing to develop its programme for nuclear armoury despite international sanctions and restrictions imposed under Barack Obama's presidency. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to say that joining me on the line now is Israeli Ambassador Mark Regev. Ambassador Regev, can we please start perhaps by just clarifying exactly how Prime Minister Netanyahu knows what he knows? How has he gone about obtaining this information? What we came across, and it's quite an intelligence coup, is literally half a ton of documents, paper written documents and computer files on CD-ROMs, altogether over some 100,000 files from 
the Iranian archives. So these are official Iranian documents that attest in no uncertain terms to the Iranian desire to build nuclear weapons. Why is this so important? Because the Iranians have been saying for years, oh, we don't want nuclear weapons. Heaven forbid, we want nuclear energy for peaceful purposes, for medical uses, for energy. This clearly, this new documentation clearly shows that the Iranians have been lying, that the Iranians have conducted a policy of duplicity, of mendacity, and we now have the solid proof to show that. And you know that I'm just asking you this question just for the sake of playing devil's advocate. But is there anything to suggest that they have just been developing such weaponry for no other reason than protection in exactly the same way here in the UK? We have the Trident system, but we don't necessarily have any intention of using it. Look, the Iranian regime is very aggressive. It is an ideologically driven regime going back to the Iranian revolution and Ayatollah Khamenei. They want to export their version of the Islamic Revolution. They fund terrorism across the region, Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad. They support military militias in places like Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, in Lebanon. They are supporting the Assad regime. In Syria, Assad will have fallen without Iranian support. This is a regime that oppresses its own people. It is a regime that's aggressive upon its neighbors. And first and foremost, from our perspective, this is a regime that calls for the destruction of Israel. And the idea that such a regime would get its hands on weapons of mass destruction is something that we can't tolerate. How do we know then exactly what Iran's intentions are based on sort of what you were saying about how they have dealings in certain terrorist organizations potentially or regimes that are questionable how do we know what their intentions are because there's going to be other people listening to this who are also going to want to know that the iranians repeatedly have said that my country has no right to exist that israel should be wiped off the map this is said by iranian political leadership this is said by iranian religious leadership this is said by iranian military leadership This is a clear and consistent message that has been coming out of the Iranian regime ever since the Islamist revolution. But it's not just words. The Iranians fund and train and arm terrorist groups to kill Israeli civilians. And their nuclear program is part of a larger goal of creating an Iran as the strongest country in the region so as to export their version of the Islamic revolution. Now, there are some skeptics out there because obviously this announcement from Prime Minister Netanyahu has come just days before President Donald Trump is set to announce whether or not the US has any intention of pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. Is this not a bid by Prime Minister Netanyahu to secure it in his country's favor once and for all? Let's be clear. Israel has for a few weeks now been sharing these new documents with the Americans who've looked at them independently and have attested to their authenticity. And so we've already had another country who's seen the same information, who has verified that these are Iranian documents. We are now sharing the material with the E3, that's Britain, France, and Germany, who will also be able to see the material and attest to its its authenticity. We'll also be sharing with the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. What's crucial about these documents is they prove 
a continuous pattern of behavior by the Iranians. You know, when the nuclear deal was signed in 2015, part of the deal said the Iranians had to come clean on their past illicit nuclear activities. It's specified in the agreement that they had to come clean about their previous military nuclear activities. Now, they denied having such activities, and you can see that in black and white in the report by the IEA. Now, these documents prove without any doubt whatsoever, conclusively prove, that the Iranians lied to the IAEA. Now, in the nuclear agreement itself, it says that the further implementation of the deal is a function of the Iranians coming clean on the previous military uh, nuclear program. Now, if they have not fulfilled that element, and it's clear that they have lied, then you have a whole question mark over the future of the deal. Well, if it is so clear that they have lied, does it make it even more frustrating then for you to know that Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has said that Britain is going to stick with the nuclear agreement signed with Iran and other world powers, despite what Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Israeli forces have uncovered? Israel is not against the deal for the sake of being against the deal. We're not calling for its abrogation simply because we don't like the piece of paper it's written on. Our overriding goal is that Iran should not have the capabilities to build nuclear weapons. That's the only thing that's important for Israel. And so those in Europe who want to keep the deal, we say you must address the problems in the deal. Because if the deal stays as is, Iran gets nuclear weapons, that's clear. So if people want to save the deal with Iran, it's important to fix that deal. And our challenge to the E3, that's the British, the Germans and the French, is as follows. Deal with the flaws in the nuclear uh, agreement. Number one, the sunset clause. Uh, as the deal stands, in just a few years, Iran will be allowed unlimited enrichment of uranium. That's producing the explosives for nuclear bombs. They can do so at an industrial scale. That can't be allowed. We cannot have a situation where just in a few short years, Iran can start producing unlimited amounts of fissile material for bombs. That has to change. Secondly, the current nuclear deal in no way touches the issue of Iran's aggressive ballistic missile program. Now, Iran is producing missiles, more of them, and wants to produce missiles with even greater range. That cannot continue. A ballistic missile program is only a vehicle, a mechanism to send nuclear warheads. They do not need that program. And they shouldn't have it according to UN Security Council resolutions. Thirdly, there's the whole problem with inspections. Iran, at the moment, says that all military sites are off limits to the inspectors. Now, so if I was the Iranian government and I wanted to hide an illicit nuclear program, where would I hide it? Of course, in a military site. They just have to declare a, a particular location, a closed military site, and no inspector can go there. We need inspectors on the ground who have the tools to do the job that is required. The Iranians themselves have admitted to having a nuclear site. It's only when the international community has discovered it have the Iranians admitted having it in the first place. So we have to have a much more intrusive and robust inspection mechanism. Ambassador Mark Regev, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us today on The Jewish Views. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email us studio at jewishviews.co.uk 
on Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash The Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And we're delighted to have with us in the studio today, Naomi Dixon, who's the Chief Executive of Jewish Women's Aid. Now, we're talking about a very serious subject here, aren't we, Naomi? Unfortunately, top of practically every news bulletin is the abuse of women over social media in general. But you're dealing with it from the Jewish point of view, I gather. Yes, that's absolutely right. So Jewish Women's Aid was set up about 25 years ago to support Jewish women affected by domestic violence and abuse. And that's what we do even today. Over the last few years, we have seen a significant increase in the number of women coming to us for support. But interestingly, over the last quarter, the last three months of the year, we have noticed that the numbers of women coming to us has increased by a startling 40%. And so whereas the first three quarters of the year, we had about 70 or so women coming to us for help. In the last quarter, we had 103 women, which is the highest number ever that have come to us and picked up the phone and had the courage to ask us for some support. Which must take a lot of courage. I imagine the difference between abuse 25 years ago when you began and now must be very significant because, of course, 25 years ago we didn't have, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have WhatsApp, we didn't have anything. Well, I think the nature of online abuse is definitely a new thing. But I would always say that domestic violence and abuse is characterised by an imbalance of power and control. And that can, at the moment, manifest itself often in social media and stalking and harassment, but always has manifested itself in types of abuse which could include physical, sexual, financial, psychological and emotional abuse. And those things continue to this day. We call it domestic abuse. Actually, you tend to think, therefore, that it's in the home, that the, this abuse has to take place in the home environment. Maybe we should start thinking about it as generic abuse, because if it's taking place on the computer, it can be emotional abuse when you're talking to somebody outside the home. And I just wondered if the the whole sort of field of, of abuse has changed, the way, the way we think about it. I think you're absolutely right. The way we see abuse has changed. So historically, it used to be domestic abuse because it was in the home. It was in a domestic setting. Now, a lot of the sector refers to it as intimate partner abuse, which means that it's not tied necessarily to a building or a particular place, but rather to a relationship. What can we attribute this shocking rise that you have suggested has been the case in this year alone too do we have any idea of why suddenly it's gone up so much not that any is acceptable but it's it seems a really dramatic increase it is it is a dramatic increase and it has surprised even us but we we know that across the country since in the last few years domestic violence services have been taking an increased number of calls in our community, we've seen, as, as we've said, 103 in the last quarter. And, and I attribute that partly to the Me Too movement. So internationally, people are just much more aware of domestic and sexual abuse and harassment and are speaking out about it. And that is giving the women affected the courage to come forward and seek help and say, actually, it is happening to Me Too. But also we did in conjunction with the Board of Deputies, a big campaign in the community last November. And with them, we asked all the rabbis and community leaders to speak out 
to their congregants and talk about the prevalence of domestic abuse in the community and the fact that the community should not tolerate domestic abuse and that Jewish Women's Aid is here to help. And I think the impact of those two campaigns particularly has reached out and given women the courage to come forward and pick up the phone and ask us for support. I haven't seen any particular evidence that there is more domestic abuse happening in the community than there was before. We keep referring to the community. Are we talking about all religious aspects of the community, right from the far left to the far right? We work with women across the whole breadth of the community and as as far as Jewish Women's Aid is concerned, women just need to identify themselves as Jewish, but our client base is women across the whole breadth of the community. When someone, a woman usually, has had the, the, the courage to come forward to you, how do you operate? You, you listen to her. And what happens if she just needs protecting? What is the procedure? Initially, women would normally phone our helpline. And our role on that helpline is to listen and believe because quite often women, well, we know, actually, we, did, we, did, we looked at some numbers and we worked out that over the last, women who've come to us to, for support over the last year have typically been in abusive relationships for 12 and a half years, which is just absolutely staggering and, and terribly upsetting to think about. So if they've actually gathered enough courage to phone up the helpline that's often the first time they've spoken about the abuse to anybody at all and so our role at that point is to listen and believe and support after they've been speaking to somebody on the helpline they'll then be referred to our casework team and their role the caseworker's role is to increase the safety of the woman and her children and decrease the risk that they are living with and they might do that in lots of different ways and that might include legal support or welfare benefits advice emotional support sometimes women need to flee and move to a refuge or safe accommodation so there's lots of different ways that we would work and we would also liaise with social services safeguarding boards and the police when necessary do we have any specific you talked about having to flee any specific jewish homes if if it's a jewish woman in, in a community in which they are quite observant they may want to only move she would only move her children where she could be sure that it would be accommodating to her needs as a as an orthodox woman absolutely and that's why it's really important that we've got very flexible refuge provision so that we are able to accommodate as many women as possible because when women need to flee they need to move to an area that's safe for them so even though the area that they used to live in might have felt safe because it's got their network and infrastructure it might also be the area where the perpetrator lives and so quite often women need to move to a completely different area and so we try to accommodate that as far as possible where would initially they find the phone number well they can they can certainly go to our website where the phone number is but we've also tried to advertise as widely as possible and if you go to women's toilets in a lot of the synagogues in our community there's a poster on the back of the door with our services and our phone number on it and one would assume that with such a sensitive subject every single case is dealt with total anonymity Absolutely. The confidentiality in our agency is absolutely watertight and the women who come forward can trust that implicitly. It's obviously very clear when someone has been physically hit or physically battered. You can see, you can point to a bruise, you can, you can talk about the, the, the physicality. Where, at what level, how does someone define for themselves, I have been emotionally abused? There's one thing, again, I'm not given very much money. At least you can point to the bank account. And, but but how, do you, how do you actually define emotional abuse? It's a really difficult one because 
what what we've seen is that emotional abuse is one of those things that sometimes creeps up on people. So by the time we talk to women, they're often able and they're in a position to say, well, actually, do you know what? The signs were there from the beginning. And looking back, I can see exactly how it started because he started controlling what I was wearing. Then he wouldn't let me talk to my friends. And by the time she managed to flee, the emotional abuse had, had escalated to financial and sexual and physical abuse often, but not always. So there are some standard definitions. Again, I would go back to this imbalance of power and control. So if a woman is unable to push back and say, I'm not comfortable with what you're encouraging me to wear. I don't like the way you're speaking to me. I do need my own freedom. And that pushback is effective, then I wouldn't necessarily characterise it as abusive. But if they're unable to push back and regain any control in the relationship, then of course it would be characterised as emotional abuse. And we were really delighted last year when the government brought into law the coercive control law. I was going to mention that. Which which has resulted in some convictions, but also gives some weight and gravitas to the term emotional abuse and, and coercive control, which goes hand in hand with it. And do you find that people, fortunately or unfortunately, have come to you before they've got to the stage of having to go to the police and having to get exclusion orders and and all that sort of thing? Are they coming to you before they're reporting it? Quite often they are, and that's obviously our best case scenario, because what we would like really is for our education and training programmes to act as early intervention indicators so that people are able to identify and understand what abuse looks like and say at an earlier stage, this is happening to me, I'm going to go and get some support before it gets to a point that they need to report it to the police. And so, you know, our aim obviously is to reduce the fact the current fact that women are waiting 12 and a half years before seeking support, we want that with them to be able to seek support as soon as they need it. Absolutely, indeed. And lastly, can you give us this this very, very important telephone number? Absolutely. So the Jewish Women's Aid Helpline phone number is 0808 801 0500. Many thanks, Naomi. Thanks for coming in to talk to us today. Do you know, I tell you, just listening to what Naomi was saying there about what women in our own community and for some strange reason I don't know why but I often believe that that Jews seem to think they have almost this immunity to the real world in some weird way we can't quite believe that we as a community are capable of inflicting the same as anyone else from any walk of life is able to do it's almost as if we have this bury our head in the sand attitude yeah that's I've right. often seen on the back of um, on the back of toilet doors that you do see the, the the spilled wine glass, and you can't help but sort of read it when it is there. But interestingly, I often find we don't chat about. I mean, you know, girly chats don't involve domestic violence. You know, you would talk to your friends almost about any other subject, however sort of personal, intimate, whatever it is. But you would never really say, "I really think my husband's abusing me." I think shame, shame plays a lot. I think one feels shame at being in that situation maybe guilty a lot of absolutely the, a well, lot so of much of it's keeping up appearances exactly lips. exactly what's something that struck me that i didn't like to ask Naomi because she was jewish women's aid is that there are quite a large proportion of men being abused and they very rarely get talked about well, in they the do same sometimes. context. They do. In the paper only this week, I did notice there was a there was a man who had been hit with a shovel. There was he. There was some. There's some very. Again, you don't hear about it as much, probably because the majority of violence is against women. 
and, and men maybe feel they can't speak, you know, can't absolutely well absolutely because i think that there is this and it, it's almost been proven scientifically hasn't it where where men almost possess aside from the sense of jewishness and keeping up appearances there but men on top of that have this notion of must appear almost macho you know yeah. men don't cry and all of that malarkey mm. and the whole point is that there is such this notion still of stiff upper lip and I don't get it. I don't understand because I personally have always been a very transparent person. I've always said, and it goes against me as well, believe me, but I've always said exactly what I think. I don't hold back because I don't believe there's a point of holding back. I actually believe it is unhealthy it is, to do uh, so. But a lot of men find it difficult to emote. They can't always, and this is a horrible generalisation, a massive generalisation, but but as that generalisation goes, men are less willing on the whole to come forward and to say, I feel really unhappy about the way my partner is abusing me or doing X, Y, Z, or the emotional abuse it's more likely to be emotional abuse, possibly. Do you think this is a British thing that you were talking about stiff upper lip? I'm wondering, out of sheer curiosity, what the proportion of abuse to women is in, say, France or somewhere. Well, obviously, none of us have those statistics in front mm. of us, but I, I would hedge my bet that nationality has got an awful lot to do with it, even though we obviously were talking about the religious element and now yes. our communities trait with regards to this particular subject. I also personally believe that nationality can play a massive part of it because in exactly the same way, if we trivialise this for a second, if it's possible to do so, let's just say that when travelling on the London Underground, no one in their right mind would turn to the person next to them and start having a conversation. However, if you go into some metro systems on the rest of the European continent, or indeed further afield, people openly get on the trains and they start talking to each other. We wouldn't dream of doing that here. And I feel that that is more of a British behaviour that's learnt, and especially a London And we feel behavior. isolated. We close ourselves in. Mm. You, you have almost like an armour that you don't talk about certain things. And as I said, I find it extraordinary that of all the things I've talked about with, with my girlfriends, it doesn't seem to be one. Maybe I've been very lucky. Nobody has actually witnessed it or, or had it done to them, but... I'm sure that it's more likely they haven't wanted to speak about it. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. I'm talking to Stuart Stepsky, who is a committee member behind the Jews Got Talent 2018. Stuart, what is the event itself? Tell us a bit about it. The event itself, this is the second year. We, last year it was very successful and this is the second year. And it's basically about finding talent within the community, within London, or even further outside of London. People who've got some sort of talent, be it a comedian, dancer, juggler, whatever they've got, we need their talent. Last year's winner actually appeared on Britain's Got Talent in front of the judges. Unfortunately, she didn't get through. And so there is quite a lot of opportunity for people to display their talents. 
Where does the event take place? This year it's taking place at the Wylots Theatre in Potter's Bar. What sort of format does the show take? Okay, so we're going to have auditions are being held on the 13th of May at the Jewish Care Campus. We've already had quite a large response, but we've always got, if need be, we might have to have auditions on a second audition day. Then once we finalise which the, the people are going to go through, they will come to the theatre where we will have celebrity judges. Last year we had Ronan Keating, Francine Lewis, Mark Foster. So this year we'll also have Francine Lewis has agreed to do it. And of course the editor of Jewish News, Richard, will also be one of the judges this year. So we're quite looking forward to what he's got to say for himself. Is he the Simon Cowell figure in a yes, the judging panel? Yes, I think he will be. Yeah, yeah, I think he will be, yes. Yes, I can believe that. He'll be the Mr <laughs> Nasty, I suppose. Do you, say. do you get mainly singing, mainly voice uh, auditions? No, that's exactly... We want to make it a variety show. We don't want just all singers, because last year there was predominantly singers. This year we're going for a much broader spectrum, and we want a magician, comedians dance troops, choirs, acrobats, jugglers, whatever you can think of, or even if it's somebody playing the spoons, just something different, you know, so make it into a proper old-time variety show. Oh, Diana, you should yes. apply. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I should. Can you play the spoons? <laughs> no, but I yeah. can think of several other things I can do. Oh, um, really? <laughs> how long is each act? Each act will be approximately five minutes. So they will get to do, you know, one song or or a five-minute turn. The evening will start off at probably about 7, 7.15 and go on to about half past 10. And this is just to clarify that this is the actual Jews Got Talent evening as opposed to the auditions, which is a separate event, isn't it? That's right. The the actual Jews Got Talent, the event at the Wilots Theatre in Potter's Bar, will be on October the 7th. That's Sunday, October the 7th. Tickets are not available yet. But if you look in the Jewish news, you will see when tickets will become available and you'll be able to purchase the tickets through Jewish Care on their website or online or on their phone number. It sounds like a real family event. Are it you is, expecting yeah. lots of young people to audition? Yeah, last year we last year we had from the age of 10 to the oldest was 78. So it's right across the board and, and that's exactly at the moment, if you like, we've got predominantly a few more younger people we would greatly like and no disrespect but older people and older meaning literally anything in their 50s 60s 70s so anybody as i say the couple that were over in their 78 a husband and wife were fantastic they did a singing duo and they were excellent so everybody's got a chance and the we want to open it up to absolutely everybody now i have to be blunt when i say this this country already has Britain's Got Talent, so yeah. why do we need Jews Got Talent? Oh, well, what, what's Britain's the point behind it? That, I mean, it's just a boring programme, isn't it, really? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It, it's the same format with the same judges. But what I mean know. is there must be a purpose behind this event, isn't there? Then There must be a reason why we've yeah, got the Jews pur- Got Talent. The purpose behind the event is to raise lots of money for Jewish care and for other local Jewish charities. Last year, we gave to... Hutstoller, the ambulance service. We also gave to Noah's Ark, which is a hospice for children. We gave to Guide Dogs for the Blind in Israel, a cancer hospital in Israel for children. We also gave to Yavna School. So it's a broad spectrum of, and that's the idea behind it. And the main idea is to have a great fun evening. 
and make it enjoyable because there's really not a lot on television on a Sunday. <laughs> well, one of the, the main features of, and I'm sorry to refer it to, but you yeah. forgive me for comparing it with a name like Jews Got Talent, but one of the main features of Britain's Got Talent yeah. is that there is the audience interaction and ultimately they are the judges. They decide oh, yeah, yeah, who yeah, wins. Yeah, so yeah. How, how does that side of things work? Okay. Who decides who wins? Right. This, last year, it was the audience had voting slips and they voted for who they wanted to win and that's how we found the winner. So the audience participate in finding the actual winner. That's the whole point of it. And what does the winner get? Well, I'd love to say a £5 million contract with EMI, <laughs> but they get a very, very nice trophy. Oh, that's good. I think that's better than a kick in the teeth. Are you having an old-fashioned master of ceremonies? Yes, and guess who it's going to be? You. Couldn't think. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Not Ant and Deck, watch out. (laughs) No, no, forget them. But I think it was a very enjoyable show. Stuart Stepsky from Jews Got Talent 2018. Thank you very much. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, those of you with a keen ear may have picked up on something that Rabbi Andrew Shaw said in his Rabbinic Thought for the Week last week. He mentioned about a day of inspiration which took place at Kinloss United Synagogue. Well, it just so happens, Kate, that that is your synagogue and we sort of got you to take your microphone with when you went to the Day of Inspiration and this is what happened. On Sunday the 29th of April, Kinloss Shul put on what they call their Day of Inspiration. It's the chance every year for British Jews to learn and to be inspired by some of the finest speakers the wider Jewish world has to offer. But how does it work? Rabbi Andrew Shaw, head of Mizrahi UK. The idea is to basically give the community a day of learning from so many different talks about so many different areas of Jewish life uh, and Zionism and, and, and modern Jewish living. And Mizrahi is here to strengthen the community's connection to Israel and to an authentic modern Orthodox way of life and a religious Zionist way of life. But I think for a lot of people here, they haven't had the opportunity uh, like this. A lot of them live in the community but don't have the kind of rabbinic sort of inspiration that maybe we can provide from Israel to really complement what they get maybe in their local communities. So for us, it's a chance to link with the local communities. We're working with Kinloss Shul over here to just basically inspire people to what it is to be a Jew, what it is to be a Zionist, and I think people are loving it. And were you linking this in some way to the 70th anniversary of Israel? I mean, Mizrahi this year have done a whole campaign about Israel 70. We started with the Shreki concerts in the winter. We're doing a lot of concerts up and down the country to celebrate 70 years. And this is our major educational event for that occasion, yes. The keynote speaker of the day was the head of the Spanish and Portuguese Sephardi community, Rabbi Joseph Dweck. There's one major idea that I think is at the heart of our people today, that if you were to ask me what is it, what is the one idea that I think is essential that should be in everybody's heart, in the heart of every Jewish person, it is this. We are first and foremost a nation. And that might sound very simple to some people, but is it simple to many? And I will say personally, it took me a long time to be able to genuinely internalize and understand and identify with that point that we are, first and foremost, a nation. Everything else that we might be is only secondary to that. How did this inspirational day begin? 
Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence is the senior rabbi at Kinloch Shul. The idea was to have a solid day from immediately after Shacharit through till 10.30 at night, where we would have successive shiurim and the opportunity for people to have solid exposure to internationally acclaimed rabbonim and Jewish educators, an opportunity to show that the world of the yeshiva and the world of Jewish London are not so far removed. It's an opportunity for inspiration and for growth, an opportunity for those people who would like to meet the different teachers of their children on their year schemes to see what the real Torah of Eretz Yisrael is. It's a chance to be inspired. We've had around 20 international presenters from Israel. We've had them come to about 30 different shuls, 4,000 people exposed over the course of this Shabbat. And with that, we had over 400 people in the room just now for Rabbi Dweck. And the numbers are growing as people are coming. Now, it wasn't just me who took something out of the day. Here's what some of the attendees thought. The strength of the Torah educators that there are in Israel, that Mizrahi has been able to bring over here. A fantastic day so far. Unbelievable speakers, very inspirational. What made you come in the first place? Um, I came last year. Last year was fantastic and I saw it advertised on Facebook as well. It's been fascinating. And my, my, my son made me come along because he's going to ask. What have you found that you've enjoyed so far? Uh, the standard of lectures are entertaining, they're informative, they're more importantly, they're very inspiring. Just also the breadth of issues there. They're speaking, Rabbi Dweck spoke about Israel, the centrality of the state of Israel into our, the way that we perceive our own religiosity. It's very interesting. Rabbi Aaron spoke about the psychoanalytical aspects of, of Judaism, our conception of God and how it defines who we are. Again, fascinating and riveting. You don't find a whole day a bit exhausting, or do people dip in and out of lectures? Well, as Jews, we have a desire to learn and learn about learning. You somehow find resources you never thought you had. So a late night washing up to one o'clock in the morning after Shabbat, early morning davening, didn't really interfere with my desire to be here. And if you just, if you just experience the dynamism here and the energy, it carries you through. When Kinloss started this event, they set out to inspire just a handful of the community. Now it has well and truly grown into a massive annual event. So if you weren't able to make it this year, I've been reassured they're already looking at how it can be even better next year. Well, it certainly sounds like a very busy day was had by all. It certainly was, actually, and I was very, I was jolted and jostled, and honestly, it was hard to get seats. It was really worth it. I'm glad I did, though. And now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this week it is from Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. The Torah reading, Emor, covers a broad range of topics. There's material about the Kohanim priests and how they are to conduct themselves and what restrictions govern their lives how to sanctify God's name in difficult times, and a return to the narrative of the story of the Israelites in the desert. But the most well-known and longer section deals with the festivals. In fact, it's read on some festival days as well as this week. The festival section begins by saying that these are the special days set aside for God, and as you would expect, it begins with Shabbat, and then goes on to Pesach and goes all the way through the festival cycle until the end of Sukkot. 
but there is an unexpected intrusion in the text. Once we've covered Pesach, Shavuot, we'd expect it to go directly onto Rosh Hashanah. But in fact, just before it does, it tells us that when we harvest our fields, we are to leave certain gifts for the poor. It's very unexpected and out of place, particularly as the same rule has already appeared in last week's Torah reading Kadoshim. The commentators have grappled throughout the centuries with this intrusion and have come up with all kinds of creative ideas to explain the connection between the poor laws as they are and the festivals that precede and follow. I'd like to explain the text according to the Sforno, an Italian doctor and great Torah commentator of the Renaissance period. The Sforno makes an observation which is quite counterintuitive. This means that after we have all this bounty, the harvest festival, the harvest seasons, and we are enjoying what we have, we want to preserve it, we want to set it away, so that we've got enough in difficult times. So it's the Sforno, the way to do that is to give some away. The way we preserve our future is recognizing that the gifts of God that we have really belong to God, and we should distribute them to others as needed, and as such, the reason these verses appear here is to tell us that if you want to hang on to what God gives us, we need to be generous to others. Thank you very much, Rabbi Harvey Belovsky, for our thought for the week. And thank you to, to our other guests, Mark Regev, the Israeli ambassador, Naomi Dixon, the chief executive of Jewish Women's Aid, Stuart Stepsky, committee member behind Jews Got Talent. And thank you, of course, to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Kate Fulton. And me, Phil Dave. And me, Diana Toman. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.